welcome everybody. We have our guest in our self-investigation gathering today, uh, Swami Sarva Priyananda, who is the minister and spiritual leader of the Vedanta Society of New York. Uh, he joined the Ramakrishna Math in 1994 and received sannyasa in 2004. Uh, Swami Sarva Priyananda is a well-known speaker on Vedanta, and his talks are extremely popular world, worldwide and uh, seen, of course, on the YouTube cham channel, for example. So, warm welcome, Swamiji. And uh, also we have Michael James is our guest, special guest, and uh, he has studied and practiced the teachings of Sri Ramana Maharishi for, uh, I think, nearly 50 years already. And uh, while living in India, he worked with uh, for over eight years together with one of uh, Sri Ramana's advanced disciples, Sri Sadhu Om, and they translated original teachings by Sri Ramana Maharishi uh, from Tamil into English. So, uh, warm welcome, Michael, also. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Ramanaya we can start if uh, Swamiji, you would start first with um, the topic, as I said, is uh, Advaita Vedanta and the essence of Advaita Vedanta and how to bring these teachings into practice. And uh, please, Swamiji, if you may uh, say the prayer before we start, it would be very nice. Thank you. I'll start with a short prayer, a peace chant. Um, am I audible to everybody? Can you can you hear me? You're, you can hear me. Good. Um, all right. Wait a minute. Om Asatoma Sadgamaya Tamasoma Jyotir Gamaya Mrityurma Amritam Gamaya Om Shanti 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 Om Lead us from the unreal to the real Lead us from darkness unto light Lead us from death to immortality Om, peace, peace, peace. Thank you for having me here. Special namaste to uh, Michael James also. Um, I'm really glad to be here. The question is, it's, it's a very good starting point. Uh, what is the essence of Advaita Vedanta and how do we take these teachings into practical life, into practice? Um, I was thinking that, you know, I can start with what Vedanta is. Vedanta technically refers to a set of texts called the Upanishads, which form part of uh, the, the foundation or the root scriptures of the Hindus, the Vedas. So the word, you can see in the word itself, Vedanta, um, two parts, Veda, Anta. Veda refers to the uh, the sacred texts of the Hindus, the, the four Vedas. And Anta literally means the end. So Vedanta literally would mean the end of the Vedas, but what it means by that is the final teachings or the highest teachings, the final conclusions of the Vedas. Simply put, Vedanta is the, the spiritual and philosophical teachings of the Vedas. And they these are found especially in certain texts within the Vedas called the Upanishads. In fact, one of the definitions of Vedanta, which we memorized as um, novice monks, 
was Vedanta Nama Upanishad Pramanam, which is Sanskrit for Vedanta is verily the source of spiritual knowledge called the Upanishads. So literally, the texts called the Upanishads are Vedanta. Um, these Upanishads have been around for a long time, um, millennia. So maybe even at a conservative estimate, 3,000 years, um, or even maybe a better estimate would be four or 5,000 years. But what happened about um, 14 or 1,500 years ago, distinct schools of Vedanta emerged based on the same texts. I'm just giving this for a little bit of a background because our discussion today is Advaita Vedanta, but we need to know this uh, uh, you know, to give context. So distinct schools of Vedanta began to uh, emerge and how they emerged was uh, very great masters came and they wrote commentaries on these Upanishads, explained these Upanishads. And uh, in doing so, generated or um, you know, developed, let's say, uh, different interpretations, different schools of Vedanta. So most famously, Adi Shankaracharya, about 1400 years ago uh, in the south of India, uh, he wrote commentaries on these Upanishads, at least on 10, as far as we know, on of these, 10 of these Upanishads. And the system that is based on his commentaries is called Advaita Vedanta. Now, to be clear, Vedanta as the Upanishads pre-existed Shankara a long, long time. They were very ancient texts. Even Advaita Vedanta as a system existed before Shankaracharya because uh, Shankaracharya just learned this from his guru, Govindapada, who learned it from his guru, a very famous uh, Advaita master, one of the earliest, Gaudapada Acharya. So, <clears throat> but Shankaracharya is, is uh, central to this story. So his uh, commentaries sort of form the philosophical foundation of Advaita Vedanta. But just for context, Shankaracharya is not the only master. There were others like Ramanujacharya, Madhvacharya, Mimbarkacharya, number of them. They wrote their commentaries on the Upanishads and associated texts like the Bhagavad Gita, the Brahma Sutras, and um, developed. Um, I'm very careful with my words here because none of them claim to be the founders of those systems. They developed those systems. They laid um, you know, commentarial foundations. Um, so there are other schools like Vishishta Dvaita, which is qualified monism, Dvaita Vedanta, which is dualistic Vedanta, and so on. So multiple schools of Vedanta. Among all of this, we are interested in one school, and which is, for very good reasons, um, which is very prominent and well-known, that is the Advaita Vedanta system, um, <clears throat> which is also uh, very relevant when you talk of, when you are uh, discussing the subject which we have today, that is self-enquiry. So self-enquiry is prominent in Advaita Vedanta, not so much at all in the other systems. Um, so that's the background. That is Advaita Vedanta, Shankaracharya's commentaries on the Upanishads, on the Brahma Sutra, on the Bhagavad Gita. And then it's not just Shankaracharya, it's a whole range of teachers, a whole lineage of teachers coming from Gaudapada, Govindapada, Shankara especially, Shankaracharya especially, down till this day. So they um, wrote commentaries, sub-commentaries, independent works, and developed this system. So this is a very 
uh, even today it's it's a living system um, there are masters writing not so much in the original sanskrit but in in uh, other languages including english and other languages western languages too so that's the background now the question was what is the essence of advaita vedanta um that is fortunately easy to state the uh, essence of advaita vedanta is captured in the you know sentences like tattvam asi that you are so if, that's a, that's the takeaway if you want to know what was the essence of advaita vedanta which the swami taught us today uh, there's just one sentence that you are you are that and the rest of advaita vedanta can be taken as an expansion as a detailed exploration of this one statement let me explain what goes on behind this according to advaita vedanta there is one reality behind all this plurality this entire un universe is just appearance it's surface reality ultimate reality is one and non-dual and this one non-dual reality um, different names are given to it um, most well known is brahman and although the word brahman uh, in sanskrit etymologically just means the vast the limitless or another word is that you know we just heard the sentence that you are so the ultimate reality is sometimes just called that um, so there is this one non-dual reality uh, what do i mean by non-dual we obviously experience a universe which is plural and um, there are so many people and stars and planets there are galaxies and quasars and you know quarks big and small things so uh, all of this however is appearance and there's only one reality which is uh, appearing as all of these so all this entire universe of millions of entities billions of entities do not constitute a second reality apart from that ultimate reality so brahman is that one reality apart from which there is no second reality no countably second reality and therefore not to and that's the literally the meaning of advaita advaita means to and advaita means not to non-dual um a little more precise way of formulating this would be traditionally in religion you would have this in theistic religions at least you would have this triangle of jiva sentient beings and the world which we inhabit and a god uh, however it is explained in your theistic tradition so a triangle of god world and uh, jivas or sentient beings advaita says it's not a triangle actually it's, there's only one reality to which these three do not constitute a second brahman is that one reality and god is not a second reality apart from brahman nor is the world with its variety of entities a second reality apart from brahman nor are we as individual beings a second reality apart from brahman so this explains the term advaita non-dual there is no second reality there's only one reality but even more stunning is the um the essential teaching that not only is there one reality that's not all that surprising there are uh, many monistic um, uh, philosophies even religious doctrines which say that there is ultimately just one reality but the essential teaching of advaita vedanta is that that one really um, uh, one reality that one absolute reality brahman is you if we ask what is that absolute reality 
if it's not the world, if it's not God, it's you. Tattvamasi, you are that absolute reality, the ultimate reality, the non-dual reality. And the claim is that if we come to see this, all our problems are solved. Whatever we are trying to do in life, it is attained. Um, uh, we have attained, we have done what is to be done in human life. We have known what is to be known in, um, in life and we attain fulfillment. We go beyond sorrow. The, the work is done. The game of life is over. If you attain this, this is enlightenment, realization in Advaita Vedanta. And, um, you know, one might say that, well, that's not my project. I don't see it that way. Advaita would claim that uh, we, we do not really understand, we, do, we have not really thought it through what we are looking for in life. Whatever people are looking for in life, you know, through money and relationships, um, through knowledge, uh, science, politics, whatever it is, ultimately it is this fulfillment which we are searching for. It's basically we are searching for you know, limitlessness, infinitude. One of the Upanishads says, the, the Sanskrit is, Yo vai bhuma tat sukham. That which is the infinite, that is happiness. Nalpe sukhamasti. There is no happiness in the limited. And this is what we discover after searching in various fields of human endeavor. So Advaita Vedanta tells us that you have to find this limitless reality. And if you ask, how do you find it? You have to find it as yourself. Enlightenment is not discovering that there is some limitless non-dual reality. Enlightenment is discovering that I am that limitless non-dual reality. I am Brahman. All right. So that's the essence uh, of the um, doctrine of Advaita Vedanta. Brahman, ultimate reality of the universe, world of appearance, of uh, world of plurality is an appearance. Uh, non-duality is the reality. And you are that non-dual reality. In Sanskrit, there is a very pithy sentence which encapsulates all of this. Brahma Satyam, Brahman is the reality. Jagat Mithya, the world is an appearance. Jiva Brahmheva Napara, and you are none other than Brahman. So you are that ultimate reality. Now the question comes, all right, even if this is true, how do I become enlightened? How do I see this? How do I realize that I am Brahman? This is where self-inquiry comes in. Uh, that's the subject of our discussion today, self-investigation. And the Upanishads suggest different methodologies of self-investigation, which are later developed by Shankaracharya and his followers. So Advaita Vedanta has these procedures in Sanskrit called Prakriya, methodologies for self-investigation. Um, any one of them will do. Multiple methods are taught. You can try out any one or more, see which, whichever will work. Um, for example, there is the <clears throat> method of the very well-known method of the three states, waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. So we are the waker and we, this is the world which we experience. And we actually, in common sense, in, in, in our day-to-day -day, uh, world, we think this is the reality. But the fact is, this disappears for all of us. The moment you go to sleep, just like some virtual reality, this whole thing switches up, like a switch being flipped, you know, just disappears. And then we inhabit a sort of vague world of dreams. And we also have a state where there's nothing, just blankness, you know. And then we come back to this world again. 
this world of waking. So these three states, waking, dreaming, deep sleep, Advaita takes these as the um, foundation or stepping stone or doorway for self-investigation. So what are you? Our starting point is, no, I'm this waking self. Advaita says, no, it is the waking self. It disappears in dreams. You are still there in your dreams. And the dream self, that also disappears. Uh, and there's a deep sleep blankness. But that also is an experience. Blankness is not nothing. It's an experience for, for something. So there is something, <coughs> sorry, which experiences itself as a waker, experiencing the waking world, experiences itself as a dreamer, experiencing dreams, and experiences itself as just the blankness of deep sleep and then snaps back into the waking world. What is that one underlying entity which experiences all three, waker and waker's world, dreamer and dreamer's world, deep sleeper and deep sleep blankness? So that, that one is called the fourth, technically the fourth. It's not the fourth, it's the one self. It is what, who we are, and it appears in three ways, waking, dreaming, deep sleep. So that's one, uh, I'm not doing justice to the method, it, it can't be explained in two minutes, but so that's one uh, major methodology of self-investigation. Uh, it's called avastha traya vichara, the, uh, the investigation inquiry based on three states, awaking, dreaming, and deep sleep. There is also something called the panchakosha vichara. Um, right here, you don't have to think about sleeping and you know, deep sleep or dreaming. Right here in the waking state, consider yourself. And the question is asked, so self-investigation, you want to do self-investigation, well, do it now. What is the self? Start with the most obvious, let's do it carefully, with a lot of granularity, carefully in detail. What's the self? What do you think the self is? Our first instinctive answer is the body. And then we are shown why the self, why you cannot be the body. There's a set of arguments based on our experiences. By the way, one interesting thing is that in Advaita Vedanta, um, we, we, it's always based on logic and experience. So reasoning and experience. And that experience is just our day-to-day -day experience, like waking, dreaming, deep sleep, like just this being the embodied self. Just that much is enough. Nobody's asking you for, you know, mystical experiences or samadhis or anything like that. Just what we all have, that's enough to start self-investigation. So we are asked to start with the body and then the investigation proceeds. We see that uh, we are forced to see that we cannot be the body. The body is there, but I'm not literally the body. Then the prana, the vital self, um, then there's the mind, then there's the intellect, and so on. So five layers consecutively, subtler and subtler, are pointed out, all of which are experiential, which we all have right now. And we begin to see whatever we think of ourselves as ourselves, we cannot actually be that. They are objects. They are ever-changing. Um, we are aware of them. They are not aware of us. So in these ways, we begin to see we can't be the body-mind. We are that to which the body-mind appears. We are that which illumines the body-mind and makes us a conscious entity, living and sentient being. So in different ways, there's also another method which I like called the Drik Drishya Viveka, the method of seer and seeing. So in all these different ways, they all come to the same conclusion, that you are 
you exist, there's no doubt about that, but you're not the body, you're not the mind. There is the body, there is the mind, but you are not the body-mind. You are, rather to, to put it this way, you are awareness or consciousness. Um, I'm using the words awareness, consciousness in a um, general, uh, interchangeable way, because uh, none of these words actually capture what uh, Vedanta uh, talks about as consciousness. You know, there are a number of Sanskrit words for it, like chit, chaitanya, bodha, some with multiple words in Sanskrit for it. But uh, the English words, consciousness, awareness are ambiguous. I mean, they cover too much, actually. But um, we, we can use them. What Vedanta wants to say that you are consciousness itself. Consciousness itself means pure consciousness, bare consciousness, consciousness minus its contents. So that is what um, Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta points towards. Not as words, just as the body is not a word, it's not a theory that there is a body, just that the mind is not an abstraction. And there, we, all of us, when we introspect, we have a mind, we can see that. Similarly, um, awareness is certainly not just a, an abstraction or a theory. You be, we will begin to see that that is the first reality upon which everything else is based. So we come to see that. And uh, the method, I'll wrap up, the method by which this is done, what, what do you actually do when you are practicing Advaita Vedanta? And the first thing is you don't do much. In, Adva <laughs> it's, uh, in many systems, <coughs> the idea is to, sorry, <coughs> the idea is to learn the teachings and then you start doing something. In Advaita Vedanta, don't be in a hurry to start doing something. It's more important to listen carefully and get what is being said. Uh, many people say, I've heard the teachings, I've read the books, now what do I do? And the answer, the correct answer to that question is, you haven't heard. You have to listen all over again. <laughs> Sorry. So the method in Advaita Vedanta is Shavana Manana Nididhyasana. You have to listen to these teachings being taught by a teacher using texts like the Upanishads and other um, Advaita texts. And then after one listens to these teachings, one begins to understand what is being said. Then a lot of questions will arise at every stage. So the second component of this process is manana. Manana literally means reasoning, cogitation, thinking it through. You can do it yourself, you have to ask the teacher. Many of these texts are in the form of questions and answers. You'll often find, you'll on, on the right track if you find that your questions are matching some of these questions coming up in these ancient texts. Um, once the process of questioning is complete, we get the feeling that now I have got the teaching, I also understand the teaching. I've heard all the teachings, now I understand it. But then there's still a feeling that I understand it, but it's not a living reality. Now, what do I mean by a living reality? See, it's all very well to say that you are Brahman and you're supposed to realize that. And once you realize it, you're enlightened and all your problems are over. One might say, well, I've heard this. Uh, we are not newcomers to this, this, you know, we have been on this path for a long time. So, so in one sense, I do know that I am Brahman. I've been told this for years and years. How come I'm not enlightened yet? So there's this thing, the samsara, the problem that we are facing is not a theoretical problem. 
So a theoretical knowledge will not overcome this living problem. The problem we are facing is life itself. This living experience which we have of sorrows and pains and pleasures and confusion and doubt and suffering. Um, this experience, the realization that I am Brahman, must be of this category, that it must be a living realization that I must be able to say honestly, at least to myself, ah, now I get it. And the moment I say, now I see, I will also be able to say, it's all right. I see that um, problems are at a deep existential level. The problems are solved forever. There are no problems for me, the, this uh, person who has realized one's own nature. And there's also nothing in the world, no specific thing to attain. I am already fulfilled. So this, once we make this breakthrough, and this living breakthrough, uh, one sign is that it will not increase or decrease, it will not go away, uh, it becomes effortless after that. Um, then world, the world still appears, body still appears, the mind still appears for a while, and one can live one's life, whatever one is doing, uh, in a much, much better way, in a dramatically different way. Uh, internally, at least, you'll be at in deep peace. Um, <clears throat> there are, I just mentioned these about how do you take it into practice. So this is the core of Advaita Vedanta, a self-investigation. Uh, in Sanskrit, this is called vichara, atma vichara, investigation into who am I or what am I. But what about meditation? What about religion, devotion? What about action? So Advaita Vedanta, uh, classical Advaita Vedanta says all of those, selfless action, doing good to others, um, devotion. You are, if you are lucky, you, are, you have faith in God in some form. And Advaita, classical Advaita Vedanta strongly recommends it, that you have faith in um, you know, the God of the universe. And you have worship, devotion, love, surrender, and meditation. So there are multiple methods of meditation, yogic meditation. All of them share one characteristic that is control of the attention. Uh, very essential for something like Advaita Vedanta. So meditation, devotion, selfless action, uh, karma yoga, bhakti yoga, uh, dhyana or raja yoga, all of these are practices. Um, which will be supplemental, foundational, essential even to the success of the core practice, which is self-investigation, Atma Vichara. I think I'll let it lie for, uh, at that for the time being. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Swamiji. Very, very nice. Thank you very much. Michael, would you continue from this and tell about uh, Ramana Maharshi's essential teachings and of course how to put them into practice om namo bhagavate sri arana chalaramanaya namaskaram sami thank you very much for your your excellent introduction because much of what you have said serves as a very good basis for what i i am going to say um what is the essence of bhagavan's teachings well, firstly, I would say Bhagavan's teaching, Bhagavan Ramana, that is, his teachings are the essence of Advaita Vedanta. Um, whereas other acharyas, 
generally uh, uh, Vedanta Acharyas, they become Acharyas by writing commentaries, often on Upanishads, almost invariably on the uh, um, Brahma Sutra, which are, is a summary of the uh, of, uh, uh, philosophical uh, import of the uh, Upanishads, and on the Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavan, hasn't, Bhagavan Ramana didn't write commentary on any of these texts. He did, he did um, select 42 verses from the Bhagavad Gita, which he translated into Tamil as Upadesha Sarum. Um, and he, of, he often, um, well, he himself had, uh, and he, um, he uh, one of his devotees, uh, Shiva Prakashan Pillai, wrote a biography of Bhagavan in Tamil verse, and he begins by saying uh, something to the effect of something, I can't remember the first line, the second line is Brahma Petra, uh, Brahma Jnana Petra Pulava. That is what he's saying there is, but, but Bhagavan is the great sage who, without even knowing the word Brahman, uh, attained uh, knowledge of Brahman, because he attained this knowledge at the age of 16. So he hadn't read all these, uh, all these, any of these uh, Vedantic texts. Later, when these were brought to him, he effortlessly understood, because he had realized the essence of them all, he effortlessly was um, able to explain them. Um, so he had he often referred to um, passages from uh, Upanishads or Bhagavad Gita or Brahma Sutra. I don't know, but he referred to much. But anyway, he 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 all these things were at his fingertips because ultimately he that is when that fear of death came to him as a sixteen-year-old boy, he's turned his attention within and he merged into the source. That source is Brahman. So he became one with Brahman. So he he became that which, well, even become is not correct because he he's the ego died and he remained as he always was, which is as Brahman, which is the source of the whole of all of Vedanta. So we can we can truly say Bhagavan Ramana is the source of Vedanta. So he was able to summarize and give us the very essence of Vedanta. So instead of writing commentaries on all these texts, he summarized these texts in a few uh, works, mostly in Tamil, a few in, um, in, in uh, Sanskrit, Telugu, and Malayalam, but mostly in Tamil. And his works, that is his works, the, the main ones are, well, in prose, he's written a work, Na Na, Who Am I? Uh, which is a summary of teachings that he gave in answer to questions that were asked by Shiva Prakashan Pillai very early on. Um, and in, in verse, he's written extremely important works like Uludu Napadu Upadesha Undia, which is Upadesha Saram in Sanskrit, and most importantly, Arunachala Stuti Panchakam, which is in the form of uh, Stotra, in the form of praise of Arunachala, he has taught us the the nitty-gritty of the path, how actually to put this path into practice. In the form of prayers, he's he's leading us through this practice in Aranachastuti Panchakam. It's and also in Aranachastuti Panchakam, he highlighted the fact often in Vedanta, there is an idea 
Advaita is just all about jnana. And, and all the other schools, the Vishista Advaita, Advaita, um, Chintya Veda, Veda Vedanta, all these other systems, they're about bhakti. Bhagavan has made it very clear, as indeed did Ramakrishna and Paramahamsa before him, but bhakti and Vedanta, bhakti and jnana ultimately are one and the same. They're, they're certainly complementary, but ultimately they're one and the same. We cannot know Brahman without loving Brahman. And we cannot love Brahman without uh, knowing Brahman. So knowledge and love are inseparable. The, the bhakti and jnana are inseparable. So Bhagavan has given us the essence of Advaita, but has he brought anything apart from just summarizing the essence of Vedanta and clarifying it? What is it that he has brought? Has he, has he just come to to summarize what everything that has been said before, or is there something? Some, some fresh contribution he made. Yes, there is a fresh contribution. Um, uh, I'll just refer again to Ramakrishna Paramahamsa. Like Bhagavan, Ramakrishna Paramahamsa um, uh, didn't encourage vast study of scriptures. And he used a very nice analogy for this. If you want to be, if you want to get a PhD, if you want to, um, to, to be very learned, you have to study all these texts, but that is for the benefit of others. It's not for your own benefit. If you come, if it's for your, if you're seeking your own salvation, we don't need vast learning. We need to get to the essence of it. As Ramakrishna Paramahams used to say, we need to weep for God. If we truly weep for God, everything else is unnecessary. Um, and he used a very nice analogy to illustrate this. He said, if you want to kill others, you need all sorts of weapons. You need a, a, a sword and a shield and so many things to kill others. But if you want to kill yourself, just a small blade or a, even a pin is sufficient to kill yourself. So whereas all the vast, uh, vast ocean of literature varies on Advaita Vedanta, that is like the sword and shield. But if we are spiritual aspirants, all we need is that small blade or small pin to kill ourselves. Because ultimately, what is Vedanta, what is Advaita all about? It's about killing ourselves, killing this ego, because it is ego that separates us from what we always actually are. And of course, it never separates us. We, we are never separate. We are always that. But we, so long as we rise as ego, we are seemingly separate from that. So the annihilation of ego is the aim of uh, of is the aim of Advaita, and Bhagavan has made that so clear. He ends Uludunapadu with a verse in which he says, "If it is said that the liberation one may attain is of three kinds: with form, without form, or with or without form, then I will say the the but but uh, liberation." is the uh, destruction of the ego form that distinguishes liberation with form, without form, or with or without form. So he, his, his final conclusion of Uludunapdu, what it's all about is annihilation of ego. That alone is liberation. And he begins Aranachaksharam, like the 108 verses, the, the principle of the five hymns, the Aranachastutipanchakam, he begins with the verse, Arunachala mena ahamein nene pabe, Nene Paba, Ahateve Rarupai Arunachala. 
Arunachala, you annihilate the ego of those who meditate on you in the heart as I. So what, this, what Bhagavan has made clear is that annihilation of ego, that is liberation, that is what Advaita is all about. So how to bring about this annihilation of ego? What is this little blade, this little ping that we require? That is what Bhagavan has given us. He's given us, that is what he has, the great contribution he has made. He has not only given us a very simple and clear summary of the essence of Advaita, he has also clarified and emphasized, highlighted, the practice, because ultimately, Advaita is a very beautiful philosophy. But what is the use of any philosophy if it doesn't? If it, if, if it doesn't, it's the what is the practical value of it? That's what we need to know. And that practical value lies in the means by which we can know ourselves, know ourselves, know ourselves as we actually are, and thereby annihilate ego. Ego is a false awareness of ourself, an awareness of ourself as something other than what we are. Ego is that false, that which is aware of itself as I am this body. That is ego. And that is a false awareness of ourselves because we are not this body. So knowing ourselves as we actually are is the means to destroy ego. So how can we know ourselves as we actually are? That is what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. So Bhagavan, the, the, the great contribution Bhagavan has made is in clarifying and emphasizing the practical implication of all of Vedanta. This is very clearly and beautifully illustrated in one of the verses of Uludhunapadu, verse 32. Uh, before I come to this verse, I'll just say briefly what is the essence of Advaita Vedanta? That is the, 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 the principle, um, that is the, the first principle of Advaita Vedanta is that what actually exists, as Swamiji was explaining, what actually exists is one only without a second, ekam eva advitiam one only without a second. And what is that one? Tattvamasi, you are that. So this, these, these two statements are the, uh, encapsulate the very essence of Advaita Vedanta. Both of these come from the Upanishads. So um, what, is the, what is the practical implication of this teaching? What are we to take from this? Okay, I am that, so, but then how does that benefit me? So what, what should what what should we what, when we when we understand that there's that what actually exists, what is real is only one, and that one is ourself, then what is it we should investigate? We should investigate only ourself. So what Bhagavan says in verse 32 of Uludunapadu, I won't read the Tamil, I'll just read the, 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 the meaning of the, um, the, the, the English, the meaning of it in English. When the Vedas proclaim, that is you, instead of oneself being, knowing oneself as what, thinking I am that, not this, is due to non-existence of strength because that alone is always seated as oneself. These verses are very, there's a lot of, of that is, that's the bare meaning of the verse, but there's a lot of implication on this. Bhagavan packs a, a lot of meaning and implication in a very few words. So what this, what he means is, 
when the Vedas proclaim that is you, what should our response be? Or, if that is me, then what am I? That should be our response. That's why he said, knowing oneself as what, that means we, knowing ourself as what means we need to investigate ourselves to know what we actually are. Because we, we, the means to know that is to know ourselves. Since there's, there are no two things, there's no that and, and we, there's only one thing. Since we are that, what we, previously, we, we used to take that to be something far away. We used to take it to be God or knowledge or happiness, something that was distant from ourselves. In fact, in the, in the Kali Bemba version of this verse, um, that is, Bhagavan wrote Uludunavta, which is two Mangalam verses and 40 verses of the text. Later, he joined all these 42 verses together as one verse called the Kali Bemba. Uh, and he did so by adding words at the end of each verse that link to the next verse. So the, link, the, the words that link the previous verse to this verse, the words he added were parama pannam, uh, that came before adu. So what that means, parama pannam aduni, that means that is you which is said, sorry, sorry, <clears throat> that which is said to be param is you. That which is said to be param, we can interpret in several ways. Um, param is a, a Tamil form of the Sanskrit word para. And para has a, has a range of meanings. It means what is distant, what is beyond, what is supreme. So we can take it, that which is said to be the supreme, that's one way we can take it. We can also take it to mean that which is said to be distant, that which is said to be uh, different to ourselves. That is another meaning of the word para. So we can take it to mean that is generally when we start off on the spiritual path, we take, we are seeking some goal outside ourselves. We may call it God, or we may call it knowledge, or we may call it liberation or happiness or whatever it is. It is something that we feel we are lacking and we are seeking something. So we take it to be something different from ourselves, something distant. So when we, Adu is referring to Brahman, and generally we, we take Brahman to be something, some vast thing, some great thing. I'm this little person, that's something very, very big. So we take it to be something distant to ourselves. The, the purpose of Adu, of uh, this Mahavakya, Tamil, it's Aduni, it's, that's a translation of Tatpamasi, uh, uh, that is you. That which we were previously taking to be something distant, something far away, is not something far away. It is we ourselves. So since we are that, what we what we need to investigate, we we need we no longer need to be looking for something outside ourselves to know in order to know that, all we need to do to know is to know ourselves. And in order to know ourselves, we need to investigate what am I. By investigating what am I, we thereby know ourselves as we actually are. And he, Bhagavan adds another word there. He said, a being knowing ourselves, because we can know ourselves, as he says in Upadesha India, tanai iritale tanai aridalam. Uh, being oneself alone is knowing oneself, because our self can never be an object of knowledge. What we are is pure awareness. So we can, 
pure awareness can never be an object of knowledge, uh, uh, an object of awareness. We can know pure awareness only by being pure awareness. We can know Brahman only by being Brahman. So, it, it, so it, it, in these few words, Bhagavan has packed so much. Instead of oneself being, knowing oneself as what? That's what so much is implication is implied in this. So we need to investigate ourselves. To what am I in order to know what we actually are and and thereby to be what we actually are? I mean, being ourselves and knowing ourselves, they're one and the same. So we can we can be as we actually are only by knowing ourselves as we actually are. And we can know ourselves as we actually are only by being ourselves as we, as we actually are, because they're one and the same. So he says, instead of investigating ourselves, what we actually are, and thereby knowing and being what we actually are, thinking I am that, not this. I am that means I am Brahman, not this implies I'm not this body or mind or anything, is due to non-existence of strength, because that alone is always seated as oneself. So what he means here is, it's not, that is, we need to be told that you, we are that. And obviously, we need to think about it. We need to think, why is it said that I am that? We need to understand this. But that's only the preliminary. Once we understand but we are nothing other than Brahman, what we need to do is to not go on and on thinking, I am that, I am not this body and everything. All that is necessary as a, as a foundation. But once we've understood that we are not this body or anything, we are nothing but the fundamental awareness I am, which is called Brahman, then we need to investigate ourselves. What is this I that is said to be Brahman? Um, because that is always seated as ourself. So this first illustrates that uh, the aim of Bhagavan's teachings is to emphasize what is the practical implication of all of Vedanta? What is the practical implication? When it is said you are that, what, what is the practical takeaway from that? It is to investigate ourselves and know ourselves. Uh, if we are, if we are really mature aspirants, when we are told you are that, we will our attention will turn within, and we will investigate ourselves and know ourselves as we actually are. But most of us are not so mature, so doubts begin to rise in our mind. It is said there is only one without a second. But then how to explain all this multiplicity? We, we see all, this world is full of so much multiplicity, diversity. And we're also told there is some God there. So there's so many different things. How to account for all this multiplicity if it's only one without a second? The, the standard answer of Advaita is uh, bivata. All this uh, bivata means uh, false appearance, illusory appearance. All of this is just an illusory appearance. What un uh, what lies behind this appearance? Just like li what lies behind the appearance of the snake is a rope. What lies behind the appearance of all this multiplicity is one only without a second. Ekameva dvaitim, and we are that. So we are the sole reality behind all this appearance. So if all this is just an appearance, then to whom does it appear? Does it appear to Brahman? In the view of Brahman, is there a world? Is there a God? Is there a jiva? No. Brahman is pure awareness. This, Brahman is, is one only without a second. So in its view, there is no, there is, there is no multiplicity at all. 
So to whom does all this multiplicity appear? Only to ego. That is, it's only when we rise as ego that we are aware of all this multiplicity. In waking and dream, we have risen as ego, and we are aware of ourselves as I am this body, and consequently we're aware of all this multiplicity. In sleep, we do not rise as ego, and therefore we are not aware of any multiplicity. We are not aware of anything other than our own being, which is ever shining as I am. That is the one, this, this, our being, our existence, it, such it, that is, is what is shining always as I am. In waking, we're aware of ourselves as I am, but we're not aware of our, well, in waking and dream, we're aware of ourselves as I am, but we're not just aware of ourselves as I am. We, there's an upadi, an adjunct, we're aware of ourselves as I am this body. So this pure awareness I am, mixed and conflated with adjuncts, is what is called ego. In sleep, we're aware I am, and we're not aware of anything other than I am. So the one thing that we are always aware of is I am. And that I am is Brahman. And that is what we actually are. So um, as, as I say, Bhagavan um, clarified what is the practice of uh, Advaita. But in clarifying what is the practice of Advaita, he also um, summarize the essence of Advaita in a very clear and simple way, because clarity lies in simplicity, not in uh, complexity. But one of the problems with Advaita, since the time of Shankara, everyone loves to attack Advaita, that all the other schools of, all the other systems of, um, of Vedanta, and not only all the other systems of Vedanta, all the other systems of philosophy, they love to attack Advaita. Um, because Advaita is a challenge to everything they stand for. So everyone attacks Advaita. And in the ancient times in India, there were so many different systems of philosophy were thriving and they were there was competition going on everyone was trying to assert the superiority of their own philosophy but this is the correct philosophy as always happens with philosophy the philosophy is always marked by a diversity of views that's why the the, the term used in sanskrit for a system of philosophy is darshana darshana means a view so there are so many different views that's one reason why philosophy is called darshana in, in Sanskrit. There's another reason also. What is the aim of all philosophy is tattva darshana, seeing what is real. Tattva is a very nice word. Tattva means thatness. So we, that is referring to Brahman. So what is or, or that? Tattva we can take as thatness or isness, what actually exists. That is what we need to see. So tattva, the aim of all philosophy is tattva darshana. Every philosophy may have its own idea of what tattva darshana means. In the Dvaita, we know tattva darshana means seeing ourselves. Um, as Bhagavan says in verse 16 of Upadesha Saram, um, uh, drishya varitum chittamatmanaha tattva darshanam Sorry, chitva darshanam, tattva darshanam. Withdrawn from drishya, from what is uh, from what is seen. In other words, withdrawn from all objects. 
the mind knowing its own chitva, its own awareness, that is tattva darshana. So that's the that's the Advaitic view. So, um, sorry, I, that was a bit of a red herring. Uh, but the, the main point is, um, uh, <clears throat> oh, oh yes, I'll say, uh, clarity lies in simplicity. So if we study all the uh, ancient texts. But they, there is so, oh, oh yeah, I, I was saying about other schools of, of, of philosophy attacking Advaita, because Advaita was so much under attack from so many others, Advaita had to defend itself. So more and more elaborate and subtle arguments had to be given. And also within Advaita, those who, who agreed with Advaita had so many doubts, so so many questions were asked. and. People are at different levels of spiritual development. Even among the Advaitins, there are so many different levels of understanding. So different explanations have to be given to suit people at different levels of understanding. So Advaita has become an extremely complex um, system of uh, philosophy with so many different layers of explanations and um, answers to outsiders who are attacking, answers to insiders who have doubts. So Advaita has become very, very complex. Bhagavan has simplified it and clarified it. And one of the thing, one of the ways in which he has clarified, oh, and however he's clarified it, it's all with one aim and one aim alone. But that is what Bhagavan's teachings are all about, is about the practice. So he's clarified the essence of Advaita in a very practical way. Since all this multiplicity appears only to ego, and ego is, it's only when we rise as ego that all this multiplicity seems to exist. If we are to be free of multiplicity, we need to be free of ego. So Bhagavan very clearly analyzed what is the nature of ego. This is the other great contribution of Bhagavan, that is, there are many verses in Uludunapdu that clarify the nature of ego, but it's all summarized in one verse. So I'll just conclude by just, sorry, I've talked a bit long, but I'll just conclude by talking about this one verse and then we can continue the discussion. That is in this verse, verse 25, in the last line of the verse, Bhagavan um, describes what, what the verse is all about. It's about ego, and he describes ego as Uruvatra pe ahande. Uruvatra means formless. Pe means it's often translated as a ghost or phantom. It actually, pe means it, it's a Tamil equivalent of the Sanskrit word pisasa. Pisasas are a particular type of demon who will possess, um, who who possess people, and they're even said to be flesh-eating demons. But anyway, it's a particular type of demon. So this ego is a demon that has possessed possessed us, so to speak, and it is formless. Why he says it is formless? Because ego has no form of its own, as he said in the previous verse. The body is insentient and and therefore is not aware of itself as I. Satchit doesn't rise. But between these two, two, one thing, I, rises as the extent of a body. Because it rises, it's not Satchit. Because it is aware of itself as I, it's not the body. So it's neither the body, nor is it Satchit. It is Chit Jadagranti. It is, it is a knot formed by the entanglement of Chit and Jada. Jada refers to the body, 
Satchit refers to Satchit. Of course, Satchit is never entangled, but from the perspective of ego, the Satchit seems to be entangled with the body. And that entangled that entanglement is the false awareness, I am this body, which he goes on to say, this is uh, Chichara-granti uh, jivan, it is the jiva, it is um, uh, Chichara-granti jivan um, uh, um, uh, uh, bandam, bondage, it, uh, uh, nupame, the subtle body, ahande, ego, here, subtle body he's using in a different sense, not in the usual sense in which the term subtle body is used. Uh, ahande ego, it samsaram, this samsara, that is, the whole of samsara is nothing ultimately than this ego and mind. So, this it, it, it is this ego, it is not the body, but it cannot rise, so it's, it has no form of its own, but it cannot exist without grasping a body as I. So what he says about it is, from starting from the beginning of the verse, he says, Uru Patriyundam, grasping form, it comes into existence. Uru Patrinikam, grasping form, it stands. Uru Patriyundu Mikaongam, grasping and feeding on forms, it, it grows or flourishes abundantly. Uruvitu urupatram, leaving form a grass form. That is this formless demon ego or formless phantom ego cannot come into existence or stand or flourish without grasping form. The first form it grasps is it grasps the body as I am this body. And having grasped the form of a body as I, it then becomes aware of so many other forms. It becomes aware of all the physical forms that constitute the world and all the mental forms that constitute the mind. Um, so it's constantly grasping these things. Since it itself is formless, all the forms it grasps are things other than itself. So how to get rid of this ego? So long as we are, we, we say this ego as if it's a thing, but it's we, we are, that we who are now seeking to get rid of this ego are ourselves this ego. So how to, how to cease rising as ego, how to put, a, how to uh, bring about the permanent dissolution of ego. By attending to anything other than ourselves, we are feeding and nourishing ego. So the only means to get rid of ego is for ego to investigate itself. So in the, the next sentence, he says, Tedinal Otumpidicum. That means if sought, it will take flight. If sought means if ego investigates itself, if it investigates its own reality, who am I? It will take flight. It will take flight means it'll run away. That is, to the extent to which we turn our attention within to investigate who am I, to that extent, this ego, this rising ego, will subside. And if we, the more keenly we attend to it, the more it subsides, and eventually it dissolves back into its source. So the means to get rid of ego is for ego to investigate itself. But ego is this mixed awareness, I am this body. What it needs to investigate is not the body, obviously, because that's just an adjunct. What is the essence of ego? What is the reality of ego? Is only this pure awareness I am. So what he implies by saying if sought is ego seeks its own reality. If it seeks to know who am I, it seeks to, if it investigates its own being, that is the means to get rid of it. Uh, sorry, Samaji, I've talked for, for 
longer when you did. I've hogged too much of the time. I, I apologize for that, but I just wanted to get this essence out there. So I hope what I've said is useful. That was beautiful. That we could go on listening to you. <laughs> it's beautiful. It, you're not listening to me. You're only listening to Bhagavan because I'm just I'm just yeah. pointing out what Bhagavan has said. Thank you, Michael and Swamiji. Do you want to comment, Swamiji, something uh, on this before we go to Q and A? Do you have something in mind to add or comment? Uh, it's just so beautiful. And I was just thinking, Michael started off by. Um, quoting Sri Ramakrishna, which I should have done. I'm a monk of the Ramakrishna <laughs> Mishra, <laughs> but um, I chose to stick um, sort of uh, strictly with classical Advaita Vedanta. But uh, Michael is uh, absolutely right. If you're interested in spirituality as such, instead of you know comparative systems of philosophy, uh, then it's a living reality. Um, I was just thinking yesterday and day before that, uh, you know, what would have what would be the view of classical advaita what would it what view would it take of someone like ramana maharshi and um, and we don't have to theorize about that in fact uh, the representatives of classical advaita would you know the most uh, the highest representatives would be the shankaracharyas of these uh, the matas the mon um, monasteries established by adi shankaracharya uh, and the heads, the pontiffs of these monasteries are also called Shankaracharyas. So, so, so they, are, they have more than a thousand year lineages. And two of them were pretty proximate to where Bhagavan Ramana Maharshi lived. Uh, one is the Kanchi Kamakoti, and uh, the other one is the Shringeri, um, uh, the Shankaramata there, um, Shringeri Peter. And if I know, if I remember correctly, the little I remember is that the contemporary Shankaracharyas in both of these uh, monasteries, they were highly respectful of uh, Ramana Maharshi. And in fact, one of them sent Paul Brunton to Ramana Maharshi. Um, so that would be the view of classical Advaita Vedanta to this you know, um, phenomenon called uh, Ramana Maharshi. <laughs> Uh, one thing there was before Q and A starts uh, properly, and we don't have so much time, so people can raise hand to have questions. But there was one question already uh, earlier from YouTube that uh, about some kind of differences. Uh, talking about deep sleep, is it a blankness really or not? And the other one was that um, what happens after uh, self-realization? Is there a world to be seen or? How can that be? And there's there might be some different point of view according to Advaita, uh, classical Advaita and Bhagavan's teachings. Can you say something about this, uh, either one of you, Michael or, or Swamiji? Swamiji, you please go first. Uh, thank you, uh, Michael. Um, so yes, as far as I know and understand uh, classical Advaita Vedanta, um, after enlightenment realization that you are Brahman, uh, does the world continue? Do you still see a world? Uh, the answer seems to be yes. Uh, enlightenment doesn't, there's a Hindi phrase which some of the monks in Himalayas use, knowledge is not something that uh, destroys or changes things in the world. It reveals reality. So knowledge always reveals reality. It doesn't you know, change things uh, 
change reality. It reveals reality. So once you realize you are Brahman, do you still see the world? Direct practical answer, yes. If you look at the lives of uh, enlightened people, Bhagavan, Ramana Maharshi, Vivekananda, Ramakrishna, whoever you consider to be enlightened, they still seem to have a sense of separation between themselves and others. They, they can use language just as well as the rest of us. I, you, uh, they recognize people. They know, uh, you know, everything that we can do in the world, they can also do often better. So they clearly see, hear, smell, taste, touch. They uh, remember, they think, they understand, they laugh, they enjoy. They can uh, feel bodily sensation, including pleasure and pain. All of that. So in that sense, the world continues to appear. Yet, yet, <laughs> if you would press them that, uh, so are you seeing the world? Uh, they might say, uh, you know, and in common sense, way, yes, why not? And if you ask, really? They would say, no. <laughs> there is really no world. There is really no uh, individual self. Uh, there is just that, that one Brahman uh, appearing as all of this. The, the solution to this lies, I mean, I, I just add one thing here. There was a discussion in, uh, in a class which I attended at, uh, on Buddhism at Harvard Divinity School. And the bone of contention was, does the Buddha, the enlightened one, know everything or know nothing? Because the texts <laughs> seem to say both. The Buddha is omniscient. And... Uh, the entire world is an illusion, so the Buddha cannot know anything that is illusory. Buddha only knows the truth. Therefore, the Buddha doesn't know the world. So does the Buddha know everything or does the Buddha know nothing? And the professor had a term for the Buddha. He said, is it a brainstem Buddha? That means after your enlightenment, are you reduced to a comatose state where you know nothing at all? No, it's not like that. As far as I understand it, it is that you realize that one reality appearing as many. See, at at our level, we seem to think that I am this person. Here, this body, mind, this conscious. We don't even deny that we are conscious. Uh, we are, but what we think is we are body, mind, and consciousness. This bundle and this very limited bundle and this very obvious, real, physical world out there, and everything else is separate from me. And this is reality for us. This is not how the enlightened persons see reality. They will still. If they have eyes, they will see. If they have ears, they're going to hear. If they have tongue, they will taste. But all of that, whatever they see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, remember, forget, enjoy, suffer, all of that is just the shining forth of one reality which they know to be themselves in their, their own reality. That Aham Brahmasmi shining forth as all of this. What we think of as an independent, separate world and a little independent, separate self, this they would deny in their entirety. So from this perspective, does the world continue appear after enlightenment? Yes and no. <laughs> does it? Shall I, shall I also please, say please, that? Please, yes, um, yes I, I, I would say very much the same thing. That is one thing we, we have to understand with all these sort of questions and the answers given to them is very different ways of viewing these same things. When we look outwards, we see 
um, we see Jiva Muktas, Jnanis, like um, Shankara, Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, Bhagavan Ramana. In our view, they seem to be people like us. They seem to be operating in this world, answering our questions, laughing with us, crying with us, undergoing all the emotions that we undergo. They seem to be very much like us. So from that perspective, it has to be conceded. Yes, Vanyani sees the world. But so of many of the explanations that are given are given from that perspective. But Vanyani is a person. Vanyani is a body, just like us. And then uh, if, if Vanyani is that body, they are certainly operating in this world just like us. They're seeing all the things we are seeing. But as Bhagavan clarified, the body and mind of Vijnani exist only in the view of Vijnani. Ag sorry, only in the view of the Agnani. So because we take ourselves to be a body, we take them to be a body. But their experience is quite different. They don't experience themselves with this body. What they are seeing is exactly the same as what we are seeing. But whereas we are seeing it as this world of multiplicity, they are seeing it as it actually is, which is one only without a second. They are seeing it as themselves. So the answer to that question, does Buddha, um, does Buddha know everything or does Buddha know nothing? The simple answer to that question is Buddha knows the only thing. In knowing the only thing, he knows everything because there's nothing else to know. Uh, because he knows the only thing, that is, he knows what we know as all this multiplicity, he knows as the one. So uh, the truest way to say that is, Banyani is Sarvagna, all knowing, omniscient, but that, om, that all is one. That he's not seeing the multiplicity, he's seeing the oneness. Whereas we see the one as many, he sees what we see as many as one. Because it is actually, he sees it as it is, because he's seeing the one as one. Whereas we are seeing the one as many. This is, uh, Bhagavan has, um, has expressed this very beautifully in verse 18 of Uludunapadu. Um Generally, it is well known, Bhagavan taught that the world is unreal. But in this verse, seemingly, he's saying the world is real. He says, for those who do not have knowledge, in other words, for the Agnanis, and for those who have, in other words, the Nyanis, the world is real. For those who do not know, reality is to the extent of the world. For those who have known, reality pervades devoid of form as the as the um adara as the support as the unders as the substratum as the, the ground for the world this no but this is the difference between them so th that is what i say the nyani is seeing exactly the same as we are seeing exactly he's seeing exactly what we are seeing but He's not seeing it as we are seeing it. He is seeing it as it is, which is one only without a second. What we, in other words, he sees the world as Brahman. We see Brahman as a world. If I may just interject. Yes. Um, Michael made a number of very important points, one of which struck me that, he, as you put it beautifully, 
because we see ourselves as persons. There's a body, I'm on this mind and this person clearly, no matter how much I read and think about mm -hmm. it, I still instinctively see myself as this person. And I can't help seeing the jnani, the jivan mukta, the enlightened person as a person, because it seems to be a person. There's a body, there's a, you know, he's talking, walking. I remember uh, Swami Bhuteshanandaji, the 12th president of our order. This was years ago, decades ago, in fact. He was this very elderly Swami and the head of our order. And we used to, and a great uh, uh, learned master of Ad Advaita. Many of us, we had this intuition that he was an enlightened person. So he used to pest, we used to pester him with uh, questions about what is it like to be enlightened. And there was one very crucial, um, one thing that still remains very clear in my memory. One day, the Swamis who were questioning Swami Bhuteshananda, they said, exactly what I was saying. We see the enlightened person walking, talking, recognizing differences um, and, you know, doing everything just like everybody else. Uh, so how is it that that person is seeing oneness? And then Swami Bhuteshanji, he would speak in a very slow way. He said, that's what you see. And then the questioner said, yes, Swami, but we want to know what does the enlightened one see? What does that enlightened person see? And his only answer, immediate answer was, who sees? <laughs> and that threw us, we all were a little mystified. But you know, that's exactly what um, Michael was saying, that we have made up our minds that this personality is the only real thing that there is. And this external world is the only real thing that there is. We do not see that underlying reality. The second thing he touched upon was this question of, is the world real or not? And uh, the beautiful verse he quoted, that the world is real for the Agyani and the world is real for the Gyani. But the world is real for the Agyani because they see the world and that's what they think is real. And the world is real for the uh, Gyani because the Gyani sees the underlying reality. Uh, if, if that was the translation, yes, was yes. that the translation? Exactly, exactly. The underlying reality, the substratum, the Adhara, mm -hmm. uh, which is yeah. Brahman. The same question was asked to Sri Ramakrishna and he gave a mystifying uh, reply. Uh, somebody asked him, is the world unreal? He said, oh, why should it be unreal? That's a stage in inquiry. And he kept quiet at that. <laughs> so that's very interesting because they were disciples of Sri Ramakrishna, whom we all regard as enlightened, um, the you know, direct disciples of Sri Ramakrishna, the brother monks with Vivekananda, some of whom said, the world is real. Some of whom said, the world is completely unreal. <laughs> and uh, what do you make of it? It's exactly that, I think. Is is the snake real or unreal? It's unreal as a snake. It's real as a rope. As a rope, yes. <laughs> That's right. uh, another uh, Michael can vouch for this. I have quoted it sometimes, but I'm not sure whether I was quoting uh, Ramana Maharshi right. Is that um, did he say that it is only the enlightened person who can say that the world is real? Somebody yes. Else? Yes, uh, so, yes, I think that's something that, that is only the enlightened person, well, even to say enlightened person is not quite correct, um, because they're not obviously not a person, but only, only they can, only they know what is the meaning of saying the world is real. Ah, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yes. So long as we see the world with multiplicity, we have to accept it's unreal. Yes. When we see the underlying reality, 
then only we can say it is real. Yes, that's beautifully said. Thank you. <laughs> and Swamiji, there was, uh, there was, we, we, we both answered the second part of the question. There were actually two questions I think you see you asked. One was about sleep. Yes, yes, there was a, a, a question in YouTube, from YouTube, that um, is this deep sleep really a, a blankness or something like this, or is it, uh, wait a minute here, is deep, deep sleep really a blankness or, or is it a pure awareness, I am? This was the question. Swamiji, yes, uh, would you like to answer that? From a classical Advaita perspective, See, the blankness is not a term used by um, uh, you know the classical writers. It's a term that I use. The classical writers would call it a causal state or a seed state. Uh, the idea being all our waking and dream impressions they are collected there in the seed state and in a, or a potential state, and it's a state, and then it sort of blooms forth into uh, the world of waking and dreams and so on. So these three states cycle back and forth. Um, is it a state of pure awareness? There is a radical school of non-dualists who would say that, <laughs> Advaitins, who will say that um, waking and dreaming are states of you know, dreaming. And uh, it's uh, in deep sleep that there is only the Atman. But um, the interpretation that I would favor is that pure awareness is there all the time. It's there, whether it's a waking state or a dream state or a deep sleep state, these cycle back and forth. Um, they are related to the mind. Uh, and to some extent, when, as far as the mind is related to the body, they may be related to the body. They are not related to, nor do they affect um, the pure awareness, the I am. That shines unaffected all the time. But as Michael pointed out, the only difference being is in the waking and in the dreaming, Upadhis appear, body, mind, sensory activity, and the world generated by sensory activity, they appear, and they seem to color that pure radiance of I am, but only seem to. For an enlightened person, it makes, for the enlightened one, it makes no difference. Um, in the awakened state, when the body is appearing, world is appearing, it's not that the enlightenment is clouded in any way uh, for the fully enlightened being. Okay, um, what I what I would say on that, what what uh, you you refer to a radical school of Advaita Vedanta, um, Bhagavan often spoke from that radical perspective. Bhagavan said, "Sleep is a state of pure awareness." That is, there's a verse in Uludunapu, verse twenty six, in which he says, "Ahandeyundayin anetamundahom." If ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. Therefore, investigating what this is, what this ego is, is giving up everything. Why he says that is, Everything, all phenomena, all objects, all uh, multiplicity appears only in the view of ego. So it is only when ego appears that all this multiplicity appears. When ego doesn't rise, there is no multiplicity. 
So ego itself is the seed that expands as all this multiplicity. Ego, just like when we're dreaming, the dreaming mind is seeing itself as a dream world. This ego is seeing itself as all this multiplicity. So there's no multiplicity without ego. Therefore, since, as he said in the previous verse, that if you investigate ego, ego will take flight. Investigating what this ego is, is giving up everything. That is, by to the extent to which we turn our attention within, ego subsides and everything else subsides along with it. When ego finally merges back into its source, everything merges back into its source and one alone remains. So from this perspective, ego, ex ego appears in waking and dream. In sleep, there is no ego. So sleep is a state of, well, as you say, Swami, all the three, that is, pure awareness underlies all the three states. But it is like, like the screen. The pure awareness is like the screen in the cinema. Waking and dream are states in which a picture is being shown on the screen. Sleep is a state in which there's no picture. So sleep is, a, according to Bhagavan, according to this particular way of it, sometimes Bhagavan explained in other ways to suit people of different levels. But the, the purest teaching is that sleep is a state of pure awareness. What, we exp what, what shines in sleep alone, knowing itself, is only pure awareness. However, we are, in waking and dream, we are seeing sleep from the perspective of ego. Ego is a false awareness of ourself. So as ego, we don't know ourselves as we actually are. So to us, sleep appears to be a, a state of blank or blank darkness place. or something. But that's only from the perspective of ego in waking and dream. Then, as you say, Swamiji, it is also said that sleep is a karana state. The karana sarira remains in sleep. This again, this is for the purpose of explanation. For people, the question many people ask, if ego doesn't exist in waking and dream, then why does ego, uh, sorry, if ego doesn't exist in sleep, how does ego arise again in waking and dream? What, is, what causes ego to rise? So the usual explanation that is given to satisfy people is that everything remains in the seed form, as the car and the sarira in sleep, and it, it then expands. But that explanation is suitable for people of a certain level of understanding. But if we think about it more deeply, that's actually not an entirely satisfactory answer, because according to the a Vastatraya um, analysis, we, we, we are told that that is the importance of sleep from the point of view of that analysis is in sleep, we are not aware of anything. We're, what shines in sleep is only ourselves. So supposing, supposing we accept that the Karana Sarira exists in sleep, then why should we not say the Karana Sarira is what we actually are? So there's a slight incons logical inconsistency there. So according to Bhagavan, trying to explain why ego came into existence is like trying to explain how the son of a barren woman was born. It can never be explained. That is a question people often ask is, how did, uh, why is there Maya? How did, things, how did Maya come into existence? 
uh, or Maya, according to Bhagavan, is nothing but ego. So how did this ego come into existence? It cannot be explained because ego, for two reasons. Firstly, ego is the first cause. Cause and effect come into, a, come into existence only after the rising of ego. So ego is what causes everything else. If ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist, as Bhagavan says. So we cannot explain how or why ego came into existence. And we need not explain it because if we investigate this ego, we will find that it has never come into existence. So why should we seek an explanation for what doesn't actually exist? That's why people often, when people used to ask Bhagavan, why did, why did this ego rise in the first place? Bhagavan often used to say, okay, first you find that ego and bring it to me, and then we can find out how, how it came into existence. Yes. If we investigate this ego, we find there's no such thing at all. So um, th this is, in Advaita, there are so many different levels of explanation given to suit people at different levels of understanding. So if we are willing to accept that there's no explanation, and there need not be any explanation for why ego first came into existence, there also need not be any explanation for why ego came into existence, why ego rises from sleep. Because yes. if we investigate this ego, it has never actually risen. The ultimate right. truth is that is what you, you mentioned earlier, um, the, the, the radical school of Advaita, that is the Drishti Shrishti Vada, that is what Bhagavan teaches. So according to that, none of this exists apart from our perception of it. It, there's right. no cre there's no shrishti creation other than right. drishti. So it's only in the view of ego that all these things seem to exist. So ego is the the first cause. It cannot have a, there cannot be any cause for ego. And if we investigate this ego, we find ego doesn't exist. Therefore, nothing exists. Therefore, the ultimate truth is ajata. Hmm. Beautifully and powerfully stated, <laughs> Michael. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, there was one more question, at least from YouTube, related to putting uh, teachings into practice in practical life. Let me see. <clears throat> How to get hooked onto this investigation dealing with world, family, and responsibilities every day? So this kind of a practical question came from YouTube. Swamiji? Uh, Michael, you go first this time. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um Bhagavan has given a very simple answer to this that is related to the law of karma. According to Vedanta, there are three karmas, agamya, sanchita, and prarabdha. Agamya is those actions we do under the sway of our vishayabhasanas. In other words, the actions we do according to our will. Those are the actions that bear fruit. The fruit of those actions get stored in sanchitta. And sanchitta means a heap or pile. It's a vast heap because we've been, we, in each life, we accumulate more fruit than we experience. So sanchitta is an ever-growing pile. From that vast pile, God or Guru selects those fruit that will be most conducive to our spiritual development in this lifetime, and those fruit are allotted to us as our prarabdha, as our destiny. 
So everything that we are to experience in this life is predetermined. That doesn't mean our will is predetermined. We are free to, that, that is, Prarabdha determines what we are to experience. Our will determines what we want to experience and what we try to experience. Because we want to experience and try to experience so many things, we are constantly generating more fruit. But whatever is to happen, whatever we are to experience, is, is already predetermined. And in order for us to experience whatever we are destined to experience, certain actions are necessary on our part. If we, the, the, the analogy I often give is, if we're destined to become a doctor, we have to study and pass exams and everything. So since we are destined to be a doctor, we will be made to do those actions which are necessary in order for that, uh, that prarabdha to unfold. Generally, if we if it's our destiny to be a doctor, most people who want to become doctors, most people who become doctors want to become doctors because they think they are, it's a noble profession. They'll be able to serve others. They'll be able to alleviate suffering, or they may think it's a prestigious job. It's got high social prestige, or they may think it's a means of earning money or a mixture of all these. So that actions they do in order to become a doctor is driven both by God in accordance with their prarabdha, both by the will of God in accordance with their prarabdha and by their own will. So sometimes our will and God's will happens to coincide. Not always, unfortunately. Our will is um, generally uh, uh, giving us a lot of trouble, but uh, sometimes it happens to coincide. But, but, but how this is applicable here is, Supposing we have a family, supposing we're married and we've got 10 children, we've got a, a job, we have to work 10 hours a day, seven days a week. Does, is that an obstacle for spiritual progress? No, it is not. Because all those actions that are necessary for us to support our, if we are destined to have a family and to support our family, our mind, speech, and body will be made, made to do these things. So, as Bhagavan says, however much burden one places on God, he will bear all of it. He says this in the 13th paragraph of Nana. Uh, in the previous sentence, he defines what is self-investment, what is self-surrender. He says, being Atmanishtaparam, one who is firmly establishes oneself, giving not even the slightest room to the rising of any thought, other than Atma Chintana, other than self-attentiveness, uh, that is, Atma Vichara, uh, is giving oneself to God. That is, if we are so keenly attending to ourselves, if we attend to ourselves so keenly, there will be no room for other thoughts to arise, because other thoughts can arise only if we attend to them. If we are not aware of them, they can't arise. So if we are attending to ourselves so keenly, there will be no room for other thoughts to arise. Thereby we remain as Atmanishta Param, one who is firmly established as oneself, and that is giving ourselves to God. Then he says in the next sentence, however much burden is placed on God, he bears all of it. That means even the burden of thinking we can leave to him. That is the actions of our mind, speech, and body, but are necessary for our prarabdha to unfold. He will make them do those actions. Any other, any other actions are driven only by our will. Those, we, if we are, if we are surrendered to Him, we won't be acting according to our will. We will only be subsided within. So, but 
if we are truly following the spiritual path of going within more and more and more, our mind, speech, and body will be made to do these whatever actions are necessary to support our family, to to fulfill our responsibilities of work at everything. So the spiritual path, by going within, we are separating ourselves from this person we now seem to be. So this person has a certain destiny and will be made to act in accordance with that destiny. We separate ourselves by going within. So there's no, whether our destiny, if it's our destiny, we will be a sannyasi. If it's our destiny, we will be a householder. All these things come according to destiny. But this destiny cannot, we, we, we may be living in a cave, Bhagavan used to say, if you cannot hold on to self-attentiveness in the midst of a battlefield, you will not be able to hold on to self-attentiveness even, even when sitting in a cave in the Himalayas. Because the problem is not the, what's happening around you, it's the mind's incl the inclination of the mind to go outwards and grasp all these vishayas. So the problem doesn't lie in the external life. The prar whatever prarabdha we're given is what is most conducive to our spiritual development. It's, and Bhagavan also said, prarabdha affects only the outward-going mind. It can never obstruct the mind from going within. Swamiji, would you like to um, no, add I, to that? I think there are a very beautiful set of instructions. First, the circumstances of householder life are not really an obstruction to spiritual uh, attainment. As you said, um, Vedanta believes that whatever is set up in this life as a householder or as a monk uh, is um, ultimately meant for our spiritual evolution. So it can't be an obstruction to spirituality. Um, I mean, why does Vedanta believe this? Because the Vedantic view of life itself is life, universe, cosmos, our individual existence, life after life, all of this, the entire game is supposed to be to take us towards eventual enlightenment and freedom. So this is the paradigm that is given in Vedanta. Therefore, from that perspective, householder life is not an uh, obstruction uh, to uh, enlightenment. I remember instructions or even scoldings given to us by senior monks when we as young monastic novices, after leaving the world and becoming young monks, one of the prime complaints we had was, oh, there's too much work in the ashram. We don't have enough time for a spiritual practice. And the scoldings we would get is that uh, there is ample time uh, and scope for spiritual practice. If you're honest to yourself, you will see how much time, energy uh, we are uh, wasting in useless thought and talk and action. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yes. The problem lies in us, not out there. Not out there. <laughs> yeah. We are the problem and we are the solution. Yes. <laughs> uh, one more one more question came from YouTube. Um, does falsity of the world happen only when one experiences pain, sorrow? that also change. So with what response, respect, world is false. So I think this is about if we experience pain, does the falsity of the world only happen when one experiences pain and sorrow? That's 
the question, I think. So I think, I think yeah. it was answered a bit. I think so. Um, I, my, my reaction to that would be that uh, Sri Ramakrishna used to sometimes call it Markat Vairagya, that is a monkey dispassion. So uh, there, a temporary talk may ensue if there is a, uh, some kind of a loss or some kind of a shock coming from the world. So a temporary uh, renunciation might come into the mind. Um, but unless one, there is a genuine spiritual seeking which is already developed, what happens is that a sense of falsity of the world, temp uh, unreality or temporariness of the world comes for a while and then it again disappears and people go back to living the way they were living. Um, so that is not what is meant by the falsity of the world in Advaita Vedanta. Uh, it is not uh, occasioned by a, a like a bitter experience. And there is in the Upanishads a very beautiful uh, analogy of two birds on a tree and the higher bird and the lower bird. The higher bird just sits and watches and the lower bird, bird lower on the tree, hops from branch to branch and pecks at this fruit and that fruit. And occasionally it pecks at an exceptionally bitter fruit and gets a shock and looks at the higher bird and decides not to taste these fruits anymore and go straight towards the higher bird. But on its way up, it gets distracted by a particularly nice looking fruit and it pecks that and it's sweet and tasty and it forgets the higher bird until again it gets a shock. So that's the value of um, these kicks and blows that we get in life. It's just to awaken us to the inherent limit, limited nature of um, worldly experiences, uh, money, pleasure, achievement, even worldly knowledge. Um, they're all right by themselves, but they cannot satisfy the urge for the infinite that we have within ourselves. Um, from the perspective of the underlying reality, from the perspective of Brahman, the world is not a second separate individual reality, the way we tend to, um, to treat it. That is what's meant by the unreality of the world, from, in a, from a philosophical sense. Yeah, but that um, that Bairagya you refer to in Tamil, that is called Smasana Bairagya. Sri <laughs> Ramakrishna also used to call it Smasana Bairagya. Yes, the, the yes, yes, Bairagya yes. of the cremation ground. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> when you go to the cremation ground and see your dear friend being cremated, for a little while you get Bairagya. Oh, what is this world and everything? But very quickly you forget and you return to all your worldly pursuits and aspirations and everything. I would also add one thing to that, that is when we talk about the falseness or unreality of the world or the reality, what actually in Vedanta, in Advaita, is meant by real or unreal? Bhagavan has clarified what is real is what actually exists. What is anything that doesn't actually exist, even if it seems to exist, it is unreal. So if we take that as the as the standard, what actually exists must always exist, as Bhagavan said. And, and it's also said in the Bhagavad Gita, verse 16 of chapter 2. Yes. Yeah. That is what whatever does not exist always is not intrinsically existent. It is borrowing its existence from something else. So this world 
is not intrinsically existent. It appears and it disappears. From where does this world borrow its uh, its seeming existence? It borrows its seeming existence from us as ego. And even this ego is not is is only a seeming existence. It doesn't actually exist because it doesn't always exist. So from what does ego borrow its or yeah? From what does it derive or borrow its its seeming existence? It borrows its existence from the real existence of ourself. That is what actually exists is Brahman, the pure awareness I am. Ego is the adjunct completed awareness, I am this body. So ego seems to be real because of this element of I am in it. So why, do, why what is actually real is only I am. Because I take this body to be myself, this body seems to me to be real. And since this body is a part of this world, the whole world seems to be real. But what is actually real is only I am. So when it is said everything is uh, um, mitya or asatya or unreal, uh, false, what it means is, though it seems to exist, it doesn't actually exist. It has no intrinsic existence. It's borrowing its seeming existence from something else. So all objects borrow their seeming existence from the subject. In other words, the phenomena borrow their seeming existence from ego. And ego borrows its seeming existence from the one real existence, such it our own being. I would just like to add here uh, what Michael is saying and also the Advaitic teachings which we study from the texts. What, what is expected is don't take them as teachings. You know, take them as fact and try to notice them in your own experience yep. right away. Yep. <laughs> it, it sounds like Oh, these are very high uh, spiritual experiences. One day, maybe we'll have them. The spiritual masters have had these experiences and they're telling us, no, no, they are not extraordinary experiences. They are uh, the description of reality as best as these masters could convey to us in speech. It, it's, it's right here. That's, for example, when we say real or unreal, just stop there, slow down and consider the sense of reality which we have right now very soon you'll begin to see it's it's not what we thought it was in our unthinking state that oh here is a world which is real no you very big very soon begin to see the sense of reality belongs to me not to the world and the world sort of leeches or stands upon the sense of reality borrowed from you notice that this right now seems real it's undeniable it feels real but the moment it passes away in time into memory, it's like memory and imagination are not very different from each other. And they seem vague and unreal. And the new instant seems real. Now, it's not that the world is real every new instant and becoming unreal in the past. Not even that time is real. Rather, it whatever you are, wherever you are, that seems real. Notice how... Dreams seem real when you are dreaming, not because the dreams are real. It's because you are there. This waking seems real right now. It's because you are there. And then, of course, Bhagavan Ramana Maharshi gives a more detailed analysis. There's one step in between. It's not directly the pure self. It's the ego. So 
the reality is borrowed from the ego and then the ego as uh, michael has shown that also can be tracked and if in our own experience and if we track it in our own ex experience right to notice it step by step uh, it's the doorway to enlightenment exactly that is the practice that is the practice <laughs> Otherwise, the tendency is that uh, these are great, uh, but now tell me something I can do to get, get these experiences. <laughs> no, Bhagavan is telling us, Advaita is telling us what we are going to, we are supposed to do. We are not listening. <laughs> we immediately classify them as, oh, extraordinary things which will happen maybe at the end of my life or in some future life. But now what do I need to do? We need to do exactly this. Yeah. <laughs> But regarding doing, Bhagavan clarified another thing. That is, attending to anything other than ourselves is a doing, because it's a movement of our mind or attention away from ourselves towards something else. Yes. But attending to ourselves is not a doing, it is a cessation of doing, because to the extent to which we attend to ourselves, to our own being, ego thereby subsides, all Doing comes to an end and being alone remains. Being is the practice, but that the, the doorway to that being, the doorway to remaining as we actually are, is by holding on to self-attentiveness, by directing our attention inwards. Apma samstam mana kritva na kinchitapi chintayat. Yes. Yes. Fix the mind in oneself and do not think of anything else. Anything else. To the extent to which we fix our attention on ourselves, to that extent we subside and remain in our natural state of summa irupadu, just being. There's this story I heard from a monk that uh, as a young kid, he used to visit any monk he ever found on, you know, near their village on the bank of the Ganges. Um, and once he went to this monk who was visiting, was passing through their village, and he asked this monk, he would ask them, give me some advice, some practice. What do I do? So this young boy who later became a monk, he, he asked this unknown master, asked him, what do I do? And uh, the master said, can you do one thing? He said, what? Do nothing. <laughs> said, <laughs> and then this boy said, and then he was taken aback, what do you mean do nothing? He said, by doing so much has already happened. <laughs> if you do more, it will keep on increasing. Uh, can you stop doing? And then the boy was a little confused and he said, no, I don't think I can. And then uh, the master said, if you can't stop doing, well, the second best is here are certain good practices to do. <laughs> uh, there's time limits. It's, uh, we have about 12 minutes or so. So there's one more question came from, uh, again, from YouTube that uh, if all is Brahman and Brahman is pure, uh, how can it manifest as evil in some? This kind of question. Samaji, would, would you like to say? Okay. Um, it's like, you know, take the movie example. You can, on the same screen, same pure screen, in the, pure in the sense contentless, uh, you can have a horror a movie, a comedy, a tragedy, in some movie, there can be terribly evil people doing terribly evil things. In some movie, there can be good things, funny things also. Uh, and uh, uh, the answer would be that 
if the screen is pure, how can it do awful things? The answer would be, the, what if you ask the screen, what would the screen say? I didn't. I, I, I was never awful. You are accusing me of crimes that I never committed. But it made possible the appearance of all things. Um, so I think this question arises, first of all, from a slight um, misunderstanding of the term pure. Um, people think pure means a good person. But pure, um, shuddha brahma, it means um, existence itself or awareness itself. Now, awareness itself or existence itself, when it is reflected in a body-mind, it just illumines and appears to give existence to whatever is contained in that mind-body system. And the mind has seeds of endless um, chain of births, uh, existences, some of which are nasty, some of which may be good, some of which maybe the nasty parts may be manifesting in this particular life. Those two are equally, they seem to be given existence by Brahman, seem to be illuminate, uh, illumined by consciousness. That doesn't mean Brahman or consciousness is affected by the so-called goodness or nastiness of, of, the, um, of the personality. It's like the sunlight shining on Ganga water and ditch water. Um, the Ganga water is supposed to be pu is pure and the ditch water is supposed to be dirty. The sunlight is not purified by the Ganga water. The sunlight is not made impure by the uh, di ditch water. Um, what appears at the level of manifestation, remember, the language is manifestation. It's not ultimate reality. So the ultimate reality of Brahman is not affected by um, the good or evil in, in the, at the level of this world. Would you like to? Yes. Um, one thing I, I'll say on that, that is, in the Upanishads, it is said, all this is Brahman. Bhagavan has said, all this is ego. That's in verse 26 of, of Uludhanabhdu, he says, ego itself is everything. So is there a contradiction here? No, there is not. That is, everything is ego because everything is, it, it is all, this is, it is all projected from the ego is the seed from which all this sprouts. So in that sense, everything is ego. So everything exists only in the view of ego. Nothing has any existence independent of ego. And this ego, if this ego investigates itself to know its own reality, it will find itself to be nothing but Brahman. In other words, it's not ego, it is only Brahman. And of course, what finds itself to be Brahman is not ego, it is only, I mean, when, e when ego investigates itself, it dissolves back into its source and Brahman alone remains shining. So the reality of ego is Brahman. So the, the world is nothing but ego and ego is nothing but Brahman. So the uh, world is nothing but Brahman, ultimately. But this important middle step is their ego. So the good and evil arises only from ego. It is not arising directly from Brahman. From Brahman, e ego seems to have arisen. From ego, good and evil arise. And good and evil, what good and evil are value judgments. We say this is good, that is bad. What is it that determines what is good or what is bad? Ultimately, if we analyze it, it's our, only our own likes and dislikes. The things we like, we say are good. The things we dislike, we say are bad. 
So um, we like peace. We don't like war. So war, peace is good. War is bad. We like health. We don't like disease. So disease, health is good. Disease is bad. We like to live because we we take this body to be ourselves. So we want to we 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 want to uh, continue living in this body because we we are so. Uh, strongly identified with this body. So life is good, death is bad. All these value judgments arise out of ego's likes and dislikes. And as Bhagavan says, likes and dislikes are both to be disliked. So, so, the, so long as we rise as ego, it is inevitable that we have likes and dislikes. We, we, identify, we take ourselves to be a body. This body needs food, um, clothing, water, air, and all these things. So if we get these things, that is good. If we are deprived of these things, it's bad. In inevitably, we will have likes and dislikes. We, we all like to eat because eating is a means of surviving. We like to breathe because if we don't breathe, we're going to die. So like, it is impossible to rise as ego and be completely free of likes and dislikes. We can... We can and we need to reduce the strength of our likes and dislikes as much as possible, but we cannot be free of likes and dislikes so long as we rise as ego. So in order to be completely free of likes and dislikes, in order to have perfect vairagya, in order to be completely free of desire, fear, hopes, dislikes, everything, we need to be free of ego. So ultimately, the whole problem comes back to ego. So the, the, the source of both good and evil is ego. Get rid of ego, and then we go beyond this duality of good and bad. And we, what lies beyond this duality of good and bad, that is the ultimate good, which is what alone exists, the, the, the one only without a second. And I'd like to add there is uh, that uh, none of this is you know, the usual charge of escapism and avoiding evil. It's not that at all. In fact, uh, uh, wherever, uh, the good example is these uh, enlightened ones. So wherever they saw suffering, which came directly in, in front of them, they did their best to, to remove that suffering, to be as kind, as, as generous, um, and as helpful and as self-sacrificing as possible, more than most other ordinary people uh, would, would ever dream of doing. So. Yes, if there is evil, the answer is try to remove and reduce the scope of evil. But you will always notice that you cannot do it at the worldly level from an ego level um, because uh, it will continuously generate raga dvesha and uh, this distinction between you know worldly evil and worldly good will always remain. That's why the deep solution will have to be spirituality. That's why a real answer to this question of evil will be practical level, fight evil and suffering. And the deeper level is to attain self-enlightenment, this attentiveness to what we truly are, to understand what is the... Like the Buddha, to understand the nature of sorrow. Why is there sorrow? Is there a possibility of going beyond sorrow? Absolutely. Uh, I think it's... Almost two hours gone. What do you think should we end, or do we have time to continue anymore? Is there a question from the? Um, the, the there's Zoom one. Or? Yes, there's one question related to to ego. Came earlier that um, can the ego have its own will 
if it, it if it doesn't actually exist michael was speaking about the individual will existing apart from god's will and only at times being in harmony with the latter so can the ego have its own will if it if it um, doesn't actually exist this was the question put would you like to answer Swamiji, would you like to answer that I'll just add, um, interject just one point here from the perspective of classical Vedanta. It's not so much that the ego doesn't exist. It's rather, uh, we are not the ego. We are not, what the illusion is, I am, I, that I am I, that's all. This is what Advaita Vedanta uh, objects to and says that you, that is exactly wrong. <laughs> when Shankaracharya sings, Mano buddhya hankara chittani naham. I am not the mind, I am not the intellect, I am not the memory, I am not the I. Literally, I am not I. That sounds self-contradictory, but it's not. Uh, so, um, so, from an Advaitic or even Sankhyan perspective, the ego ex exists as much as the mind does, the body does. In fact, uh, there is a definition of the ego. Abhiman Atmika Antakkarana Vritti. The appropriating function of the mind is called ego. So a lot of things are going on in the body, in the mind, and you need something to tie it together into one personality. So one, the mind provides a, a function called, like you, know, you have apps in phones these days, a function, an app called ego. And that's perfectly um, harmless until we say that we forget our real nature as limitless awareness, and that's what we are. And we don't even see that how we get entangled in that. So, so that's the point I, I wanted to, uh, because otherwise there's always the danger of thinking that, uh, um, so the body exists, the world exists, the mind exists, everything exists, except the, and Brahman exists, only the ego doesn't exist. No, uh, even ego exists, but in the sense of uh, just the functioning of the mind. Uh, yes, that is when Bhagavan says ego doesn't exist, he means ego doesn't actually exist. But ego certainly seems to exist because it is only in the view of ego that all these other things exist. Without ego, as Bhagavan says, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. Without e If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Because everything, the whole world, exists only in the view of ego. <clears throat> so, ego Though ego doesn't actually exist, it seems to exist, and it seems to experience all this. It seems to have likes and dislikes and everything. So ego certainly does have a will of its own. The, the will of the ego is obviously no more real than ego. Ego is ultimately unreal, but it seems to exist. <clears throat> and also regarding what you were saying uh, um, about you quoting Shankara, why he says ego is not I, <clears throat> because ego is, that is, e there are two elements that form ego, chit and jada, the chit jada granti. It is the not formed by the entanglement of these two. <clears throat> the, that, that, that conflation, that conflated mixture of chit and jada, that is not what we actually are. What we actually are is only the chit element of ego. So, in order to know ourselves as we actually are, we need to separate ourselves from the jada element. 
how do we separate ourselves from the Jad element? The Jad element means body, mind, and all, all these uh, panchakosha, the five sheaths. How do we separate ourselves from them? <clears throat> these five sheaths are not holding on to us. We are holding on to them. We means we as ego are holding on to them. If instead of holding them, if we try to hold our own being, if we try to hold that fundamental awareness I am, to the extent to which we hold on to I am, we are thereby letting go of the upadis. So the upadis, the adjuncts will slip off and the pure I am alone will remain. That pure I am is not ego, but ego is that pure I am mixed and conflated with adjuncts. The pure I am is, uh, is what always exists, whether the adjuncts are there or not, the pure I am is always there. But so long as we rise as ego, we're grasping the adjuncts and we, 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 this, the resulting mixture is unreal. The resulting mixture is not what we actually are. What we actually are is only the essential chit aspect of ego. In other words, the pure awareness I am. Can I ask a question or yes. is it too late? No, certainly. No, no, go ahead, please. Okay. I have always been fascinated by the uh, pictures of uh, Bhagavan. Yes. And the photographs, for example, the one which you have here. And uh, mm. when you talk about meditation, is it a good practice to just focus on the face, the actual picture, just to focus on the face of Bhagavan, the expression in the eyes? You know, after studying Vedanta and all of that, would it would it have a uh, um, like a breakthrough impact on the on the psyche? You know, like uh, I don't know if I can phrase this better. I I would say yes, certainly, because we cannot look at the face of Bhagavan without remembering what why did why did. Lord Shiva appear in this particular name and form. It was for one purpose and one purpose alone, to teach this path of Atmavichara, to teach this path of looking within. So by looking at his eyes, his eyes are, draw our attention back towards ourselves. Yes. Exactly the same. Bhagavan, there's a verse in Arunachala Patikam, verse 10, in which Bhagavan, uh, I, I think Swamiji, you may be aware there's a um there's a saying by being born in um uh in Aprasadasi, that's Tiruvaro, by seeing Chidambaram, by dying in Kasi, or by mere thought of Arunachala, liberation is assured. So Bhagavan explains in this verse 10 how this thought of Arunachala and what he says about thought of Arunachala is equally applicable to thought about him, meditating on him, because Bhagavan is Arunachara in human form, Arunachara is Bhagavan in hill form, they are one and the same. So what Bhagavan says is, he, he says in that verse, he says, I have seen a wonder, this magnetic hill that forcibly attracts the soul. But um, uh, uh, by making, sorry, I'm not saying the exact verse, by making one think of uh, of it, it, uh, oh, no, sorry, I'll try and say it. Um, uh, um, subduing the chesse, the, the, the mischievous mental activity of those who have thought of it even once, it, it subdues their mischievous activity, 
it draws from within to face itself, uh, to face itself, and thereby makes it motionless like itself. Um, it, 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 they draws it into face itself for one. So itself for one implies that it, the drawing within, because ultimately the one is only. It, 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 it's, he's not talking about one thing meditating on another thing. We start off by meditating on the form of Aranatcha, but that thought of Aranatcha draws our attention back within to the one, because Aranatcha is actually shining in our heart as I. So by subduing our mischievous mental activity, he draws us back within to face himself as he actually is. Thereby, he makes us motionless like himself, actualum, like himself, and he feeds upon that sweet soul, that ripened soul. He, he takes that ripened soul as bali, as the sacrificial offering. Yes. And therefore, he ends that verse, O souls, be saved by thinking of this great hill, which shines in the heart as the destroyer of the soul. Mm. So what he says about Aranachala is equally applicable about him. It's that a human his, form. Yes. His human name and form has that power to turn our attention back within and to, to draw us within. He often used to say about grace, grace works both from inside and outside. From within, it pulls within. From outside, it pushes within. So all the, everything we experience in this life, all the blows and the joys and the sorrows of life, all these ultimately are pushing us within. within. And from within, he's pulling us within. Beautifully put, yes. Thank you. <laughs> right. Thank you, thank you so much, Samiki. It's been very, very great joy to speak with you. Thank you both for coming <laughs> and talking. And I think uh, we have such a short time to for questions and all these uh, to continuation. But uh, anyway, thank you, Swamiji, and thank you, Michael, for for having this with us. And thank you, everybody who participated. Maybe we need to have part two someday. I don't know. <laughs> this is this is a subject we could go on talking about. <laughs> I'm yeah, up for it. it. I'm up for it. <laughs> I'm up yeah, for it. But, but ultimately, <laughs> we need to turn back within and subside back within. <laughs> yes. So, thank you, everyone. Thank you, Swamiji, and thank you, Michael, once again, and um, all the best, and uh, Ramo Ramanaya for everyone. And thank you for everybody who participated also.